You're listening to the Legacy Investor Podcast. Podcast, where we focus on real estate, business, and mindset. Our guests will share their experiences, lessons learned, and actionable advice to help you get to the next level. Now for today's show. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of Legacy Investor Podcast. I am super excited to have Justin Silverio with us here today. Justin is a badass from Massachusetts, started out investing in the early days and then founded a pretty incredible platform, which many of you will recognize and have used called Open Letter Marketing and then more recently in Velo. So wanted to bring Justin on just to give us the basics of direct mail, right? It's one of the best ways that we can find off-market deals in direct-to-seller marketing, but then also some end-to-end solutions. So Justin, thanks for being here, man. Thanks for having me on, Nick. This is great. Yeah, I'm excited to get into it. So like most of us, you started out, you know, invested in real estate and you had some family members that were mixing around in real estate as well. I think your father's a builder. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And just take us back to those days and how you got the itch for finding off-market deals. And Yeah. I mean, growing up with my father, he was a general contractor all my life. And I remember when I was in just getting out of middle school into high school, he was building a new house for us. And I remember going through the house when it was all started out and being like, this is so cool that you can build something from absolutely nothing, just these raw materials and make something that people can actually live in. And it just was incredible to me. And I think back then, like I really liked the creativity and I actually looked at construction as an art form. And I don't think a lot of people look at it as an art form, but that's kind of like my first take on construction. And then over the years, like I have all entrepreneurs in my family, like my uncles, my father, my brother. So I always kind of wanted to do my own thing, but I just didn't know which path I wanted to go on. And I went into accounting, was working at a venture capital firm. And around like 2009, 2010 is when kind of HGTV like launched the, you know, flipping shows. And I started watching those and I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Like it takes the creative side of building and rehab and all of that and also takes into account, you know, numbers, right? Understanding where to buy the property, how much work that you need to put into it, what you can sell it for, making sure you have a spread. So I was like, huh, I was like, this kind of seems pretty cool. Like I know the numbers really well, but I don't know the construction. So I talked to my father and I said, hey, you want to team up and try to flip a house and see how it goes? And, you know, my parents are always amazingly supportive. So he was like, yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. So we did our first, I found our first property the beginning of 2011. And we started diving into that. And it was a huge rehab, probably much bigger than most investors want to start off with. But luckily, I had my father's support and knowing what to do. So yeah, that's how it got started. And, you know, after that one, we learned a lot of lessons on, you know, what buyers actually wanted. And we just said, hey, do you want to do another one? And we just kind of just went, did one after another from there. So that's awesome. So you were at a W2 for some duration of time. So what was that time period? And then what finally... Five years. You put five years and then you made the jump. What five was that years. kind of tipping point? Yeah, I am very conservative by nature. And I think most people would probably say like after a year of being consistent and getting deals, they're like, all right, it's working. I'm going to jump off. But for me, it was like, okay, well, my wife at the time. So the first property that we bought, my my first child was born like two months before. So it was like crazy timing that I was really busy. So my wife was home with the kid, my daughter, and we wanted my wife to stay home. So I was like, okay, I'm bringing in, you know, the money for the family. I want to make sure that if I do jump 
off of my day job that I can make this a consistent thing and bring enough money for us. So yeah, I did it for five years part-time and it was a good thing and a bad thing. The good thing was I built really good systems on how to optimize my time amazingly well. The things that I did and was able to accomplish in the short period of time that I had to do investing on the side, like I still am amazed by it. But I learned how to leverage my time with either technology, systems, process, that's kind of stuff I like. And it was bad because once I did leave, I think I was three months into doing real estate full time that I already made over my annual salary within three months. And I was like, <laughs> why didn't I do this earlier? Yes. But I mean, it's hard to look back, but I wouldn't have changed it for anything because, you know, there was a lot of learning lessons in holding off for a while and learning how to leverage my time and skills. So yeah, it was a long period of time doing it part-time. You're so right about working at a B2 and then figuring out how to make real estate investing on the side happen on the side. And then what happens is, like you said, you develop these great systems that then you build on after you leave that W-2. So I was in a similar position. So I was at W-2 for 11 years and then while running a property management company on the side in addition to some other investments in your right. It's like your capacity, you just have this great capacity to really you know, make all of this happen and juggle these balls in the air. So right. it's awesome, man. That first deal, bring us to that first deal with your father. I know you said after that, you started spinning into what people wanted, I think was what you said about, you know, changing that product or buying something that I guess had a little more demand. Yeah. I mean, the first property we did, like most investors, we probably over rehabbed it, uh, right? We put additional finishes that we probably didn't really need to do. We probably did a little bit too much because when we went in there, almost we gutted the whole place and added an addition on. And looking back, I was like, did we really need to do all that? And we came out with like, I think we made like 10 or 15 grand. And we like, learned okay, a lot. Well, exactly. So it's funny because my father was like, all right, if we're going to continue to do this, we got to start thinking about making a little bit more money. And for <laughs> me, I was like, I was pumped. I was like, I just got paid to learn so much. So it was funny how the difference of you know perception was. And he was like, all right, well, let's do the next one. And the next one, we made more money. But yeah, the first one, we did a lot of rehab on it. I think we over-improved it, but we still made a small profit. So it was a win for us. But that's still valuable. So and, that, and that's a note for beginning investors as well. Like the margins don't have to be crazy. I bet you would still do that deal again, you know, if you're still starting out in your career. Right? 100%. Yeah. Even if I was going to break even, I'd still do it because I mean, it's like going to college for free, right? You get a hands-on experience of doing what you want to do and you're making money or it's costing you nothing but, you know, your time and education. That's gold. Yeah. All right. So fast forward and a bit more. You find that direct to sell marketing is the way. So did you start out with your own direct mail campaigns? How are you sourcing these deals in the early days? Yeah, early days. So direct mail was kind of my ideal marketing tactic because you could automate it. I didn't want to do cold calling. That just wasn't my style and I didn't have the time for it, to be quite honest. So I needed something that brought people in to call me and weeded out everything else. So in the early days, my wife and I would get a list and we would handwrite letters. And our goal was to do 500 a week. That was our goal. So we would handwrite the envelopes, we would print the letters, and we'd have like a process. And like every night, we'd just hang out, watch TV, and start writing. So that was like the beginning of direct mail for me. And then, you know, everyone at that time was doing like yellow letters. 
right? So the traditional like yellow lined paper, memo paper. So I started experimenting because I was like, all right, well, I know other people are doing direct mail and they're probably using most likely, I think 90% of investors were using yellow letters, but let me try something different. So over the years, I just started to experiment with different messaging, different envelope colors, right? Because I want to make sure that one, it gets to the person and then two, they look at it and want to open it. And then three, they call me. So those are like the steps in my head. I'm like, okay, how do I make sure that it gets to them? Obviously, make sure that their mailing address is proper and that they didn't move on. Two, how do I get them to open it? Make the envelope look really unique so they do open it. And then three, make sure the messaging works to them so they give me a call. So I did so much experimenting. And not only from that, it was like, okay, well, I need to keep following up because most people will stop following up after two touches, like 90% of people. And I knew that it would take me at least five touches to get the most amount of people to respond to me. So then I started to experiment, not just with the piece, the campaign, like, okay, how do these campaigns work together? Do I send the same piece over and over and over again? Or do I mix it up? Do I talk differently? So just experimenting with that. And I became really good with understanding my numbers, knowing how well I was working. And I did, it was in 2015, I did a really large test with my direct mail versus like a yellow letter campaign. And I think I did about 100,000 mailer piece test to really wow. make sure that I had a good population size. I mean, it wasn't all in one blast. It was over time, right? To make sure that it wasn't like a seasonality or anything like that. But I wanted to really understand like how effective my pieces were compared to, you know, what is out there. Because I did recognize that there was a big void in the market. After the testing, I found that I got a 26.7% increased response rate with my products over yellow letters. And that's when it kind of hit me like, huh, there is a kind of a void that I think I can fill in the market and offer really unique pieces and strategy behind direct mail and offer that to the segment of the population, the niche that I know like really, really well because I am in it every single day. So that's when I kind of came to the idea of like, I wanted to launch open letter marketing and did that in 2016. Wow. How long was that campaign, that 100,000 pieces? That one was probably about four to five months. I'm guessing I can't remember the exact yeah, time yeah. frame, but it was a yeah, it was a pretty sizable campaign that we ran because again, I wanted to make sure that my hypothesis was correct through a large population. I may not just have, you know, say, oh, I'm just going to do it to a thousand. And it was just, yeah. Work. And I got to ask, how long did you keep up writing those letters with your wife? <laughs> I don't even remember when we stopped <laughs> writing the letters and like shifted over to outsourcing. But I have to imagine we were probably five to 10 deals in before we shifted over. Because I've done it myself. It is a drag. Yeah, like it is. writing them, stuffing the envelopes, like it is a total drag. So finding any way to automate any part of that process is definitely paramount. Absolutely. So I feel that pain. So, all right, did the test. Now you're like, all right, I think I have something here. Did you go out and buy equipment? Did you lease equipment? Like, how- yeah. Look, I know folks that send tens of thousands of pieces of mail out a month, and I wouldn't even know where to begin, right? Yeah, there was a lot of pain in the beginning there. Yeah, so I started to look at, yeah, equipment, at purchasing equipment and figuring out, okay, what do I need to get something that's to write on envelopes? And I knew I couldn't just use a regular printer. I knew I needed something to insert letters into paper, into the envelope, and I knew I needed something for stamps. And so I just started with letters. I didn't do postcards or anything like that. So it was one product and I wanted to be known kind of as the like higher end or more exclusive type style. 
So I just started experimenting. I bought some equipment. I mean, looking back, it wasn't that expensive, but it was probably ten or fifteen thousand dollars into equipment. Found out that most of the equipment was not good, and <laughs> all the frustration in learning about envelope construction and paper construction and making sure that the paper doesn't curl because it won't go through machines. So I became an expert at envelopes and paper, and I never in a million years would ever think that I would be. But you had to really understand what type of product that you were using to make sure that it's working properly. So there were a lot of sleepless nights making sure that I was getting through all of the orders that we had in the beginning time. So it was really just learning, learning from buying the wrong stuff, talking to tons of people in the industry. What do I need to get? What kind of paper? And then just figuring it out along the way. I wish I had some pictures back then because like I can picture I used to have printers like your regular printers like desktop yep. printers and I had like nine of them on like shelves and then I had it looked like kind of a we had one big vat of ink and we had like these little strings or whatever going to each one of them to fill them <laughs> because it was just a more economical way to get ink into the printers instead of getting cartridges because cartridges are really expensive. Wow. Crazy. It was so crazy back then. Can you remember the first sizable order that you received? Yeah, I do remember the first sizable order. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to get this done, <laughs> but I'm going to get it done. And yeah, luckily, I mean, again, it was a sleepless night. There was a lot of paper jams and stuff like that, a lot of frustration. But at that point, you just got to tell yourself, you got to, you know, you set yourself up and this is what you wanted. Mm -hmm. Never feel bad about yourself if you're experiencing somebody that's giving you money to do something like for your business. Like you have to be grateful for it and you need to make sure that it gets done properly. I imagine this is at your home at some point, and then you eventually scale to a much larger building. So bring us up to speed on the infrastructure now. So today's operation, how many pieces of mail a month, your building, et cetera, equipment? Yeah. So we have about 7,000 square feet right now, maybe a little bit more than seven, a little bit over 7,000 square feet of space for all of our equipment. Most everybody's in the office. Some people are remote, but we have about 16 people with open letter. We do about 1.5 million pieces a month. We work with thousands of investors throughout the country. We help them with their marketing strategy. So that's the most exciting thing for me is like, I wanted to make sure like direct mail company is like not a sexy company, right? But my biggest thing was like, I don't want to just be an order taker. I don't want to just be an owner of a direct mail company. I want to help people understand marketing and help them with strategy. So all of our customer success people have the same feel and understand like how we want to be perceived. So we always try to do the best thing by the customer. And we have many customers that are like, hey, this is my budget. This is all that I have to do a campaign. And a lot of times we say, you know what? I don't think that direct mail is the best thing for you. And here's why. Because we want to make sure that we are really setting people up for success and aren't just taking people's money to send out some letters. Like there is strategy and understanding behind it that a lot of people, even people that are spending tens of thousands of dollars a month, don't really understand. And I always love when we hear customers come back and be like, you know, thank you for like pushing us. Because there's sometimes that I'm like, hey, I think you should double what you want to send. And it's hard for me to say that because I'm like, I'm not trying to get more of your money. Yeah, I'm just trying to upsell you, like, them. I know yeah. what is going to work. 
and it's hard to get people over that hump because you're spending money without seeing a return and you don't even know if it's going to work. So there's a lot of trust there. But I always love when I hear customers come back and they're like, thank you. Just got a huge deal from that. It paid for this campaign and all the campaigns for the next two years. And now we know that we've proofed the concept and we know it works and we can like now start scaling. So that's ultimately always the goal for us. Absolutely. So it is expensive, right? For a beginning investor to put out an actual direct mail campaign, that's going to yield results. What would you say for somebody who's trying to launch their first campaign, what kind of capital would they need to bring to the table to have a fruitful campaign? Yep. So I'm going to take a couple steps back. Yep. As an investor, one, they want to identify what marketing strategy they can do consistently, right? Because if they can't keep up with the marketing strategy that they start with, don't do it. Because consistency is the number one most important thing with marketing. That is hands down the most important thing. So if they're going to stick with direct mail, great, go with direct mail. If they can't keep up with direct mail, they want to do cold calling, great, do cold calling. But that's the first thing. The second thing is like, do you want to do the direct mail in-house to save costs? But from my experience and working with thousands of customers through open letter marketing, I did a lot of coaching. I don't do it anymore, but worked with hundreds of investors too. And we would actually walk them through, help them build their list, help them set up their marketing campaign, work with them on talking to sellers, closing deals with them. So we got a really in-depth view of many investors of what it actually takes, how many leads come in, all that stuff. So based on that, I'll give you some actually real numbers. If I was an investor and I wanted to, whether it's direct mail or anything else, I would look at a location, an area that has about 125 to about 200,000 in population. That's what I look for for a size of location, geography. From there, they want to pull lists because any good marketing starts with good data. You don't have good data, you're not going to have good marketing. And people will spend tons of money and blame it on the marketing when it's actually data. And it's most of the time, it's the data stuff that people go wrong with. So the data side and the lists, that's a whole nother conversation. But if people are pulling lists like absentee, equity, they do driving for dollars, tax liens, all that stuff. So generally, we want to pull about 10,000 to 12,000 records out of that population of 125 to 200,000. Okay. So now you've narrowed it down from that population size, the total number of records of 10 to 12,000. From there, the reason why we pull so many lists and different lists is because we want to then layer all these lists together and identify which people are on multiple lists. Okay. So, because in my eyes, you know, somebody can just market to somebody that has equity, but that's a completely different person than somebody who has equity, absentee owned, has mm. tax liens, yep. and, you know, a code violation, right? That's a way better prospect and a much higher likelihood that they're going to get success. So, if someone just goes through those steps, they can say and kind of hone in. So from there, we try to overlay. And then we get down to like a list of about 2000 to 2500, like really high quality prospects. So that's kind of the magic number that I've always seen 2000 to 2500, like really good quality prospects, and you market to them over like five to six touches. Generally, the deals will start to come right around Miller three into Miller four. That's usually where the magic happens. And there's a lot of other things that go into it. If the investor is new, they're going to learn. Like when I started, I missed so many deals because I didn't know what to look for, how to ask Mm. the question. So new investors should also understand that even though you're doing marketing, never compare yourself to other people's response rates, deal rates, anything like that. Yours are always going to be lower because you need to get the education and learn even how to identify a lead and how to talk to somebody. 
So that's a big one that we always try to help new investors understand, like you're going to churn through a lot more people than, you know, a more experienced person would. Yeah. And I was going to add that to that of be ready to pick up the phone and know what questions to ask and how to qualify them, mm-hmm. right? You don't want to spend all this money on marketing to get a great lead and then drop the ball on the conversation because, you know, you weren't able to identify if they're really motivated. Though. Absolutely. And I mean, I remember taking my first couple of calls. I was like, I didn't even <laughs> like want to answer the phone. I was so nervous. And you stumbled through like everybody else. I mean, every single person goes through it. This is not a natural thing if you're not in sales is yeah. to pick up the phone and talk to somebody on the other line and try to talk to them about something that's pretty personal, their property. So yeah, it is a learning experience, but you get better and better as you practice. And that's the biggest thing is, again, consistency builds like really good results. With a company your size now, you must have some crazy data, what people are searching for, how many you know letters are being purchased. What's the most popular filter criteria? Yeah, it's funny. When people come to us, they already have their lists. So usually I don't get that deep down understanding, but there are a number of people that do come to us and like, you know, the larger investors that do share that information with us. I mean, again, more and more people are trying to like really understanding the list stacking that I was talking to before. So a lot of people will build their own lists. You know, when starting out, I always look at you want to try to go toward the niche list right? The tax liens or the driving for dollars list that not everybody pulls. Now you can get tax liens from like certain data providers. Those aren't all that great. Like the real way to do it is go to your like treasury department and you ask them for a tax delinquent list. You can do that through like a FOIA request. You can actually just email them and they can provide that. That's the best way to get it. So you can email who to get a list? So, okay. (laughs) I'll give you the exact detail, like steps. So to get a tax lien list in Massachusetts, other states are going to be different because it depends on where the taxes are held. Sometimes it's at the town, like in Massachusetts, other times it's at the county. So what you would do is I would type in like Andover, Massachusetts, Treasury Department, and I would go in there and I would look at for the email address for the treasurer. So I'd get their email address. And then if you type in like FOIA, F-O-I-A, request form, Massachusetts, every state has a different FOIA request. And basically that request, tax liens are public information, you can get access to it, but you need to ask for it in the proper way. And that's through a FOIA request. Mm -hmm. So you can do that search online, you can find the actual, you know, the letter of what you have to send, copy that in, paste it into an email to the treasurer. And all that you need to fill in is exactly what you're looking for. So I think I have mine written, like I am requesting to pull a list of everyone in the town that owes uh, back taxes, has not paid taxes. I prefer to have this in Excel. If you can't provide an Excel, I prefer PDF. You can't do PDF. Here's my mailing address. So I give them all the step-by-step process. Mm -hmm. And then uh, by law within, forget how many days they have to respond to you. And they can respond right with the tax delinquent information. They can tell you it's going to cost you money. But if it's exorbitant amount of money, you can ask them for a detailed estimate of why it's that much. Had people give me like a couple hundred dollars. And I was like, per like, you know, for like whatever it is, please provide a detailed. And then they sent the list. And I'm like, are you serious? (laughs) So that's what I did. And I would basically every quarter, I would have like an automated email sequence that went out all to the different towns. And I think I had about 15 towns that I would just do every single quarter. 
And sometimes it's really painful. People don't know, oh, we don't have that, but they don't realize where it is. So you might be talking to the wrong person. That's why you always want to try to talk to the treasurer because other people in the department just won't understand what the list is, what you're looking for. But 100%, I've been 100% successful in getting it from every town that I want. Wow. Obviously, there's a statute that says they need to respond in a certain time period, but they have 100% responded all the time. Oh, well, I've had a follow up with them. Absolutely. There's a lot of people that did not respond, but I had a follow up. (laughs) I actually even put that in there. Whatever it was, you have to respond by this time. It's been X amount of time. I haven't heard back from you. Please let me know. So I have it all in writing and keep it very professional, but just let them know, like, you got to respond to me at some point. That's super valuable. People are going to love that. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. And you can do that for, you know, code violations with the building department, although that one's really challenging to get. And even you know, not many people know about firehouses. So in Massachusetts, I, I feel I have to be like one of the only investors that know how to pull this list. But um, I don't even know how I stumbled into it. But Boston Fire Department actually holds the records of every single fire in the whole state. So every single town reports in to Boston and provides them with the information. And you can get a list and it will tell you the property, you know, and the damage amount, which is amazing, the estimated damage amount. So that was a crazy cool one that I got. That one took me, I think, probably six to nine months to get of just consistent follow up. That was such a hard one to get. That's why when I got it, I was like, this is gold. Nobody else. (laughs) I would not let them say no. But I got that. And really, you can just sort and say, all right, show me all the properties that had over $50,000 in damage and start marketing for them. And was it fruitful? Did you get anything from that? Yes. Yeah, that one was a great list. It was a really good list. It wasn't a huge list for the areas that I wanted, but I mean, because it was statewide and I was only focused on certain areas. But yeah, that's, that's a really good list. So you have all the tools to just have a killer wholesaling business. Are you still buying properties yourself? Have you thought about a spinoff wholesaling or are you doing both? What's going on? Yeah, right now I'm focused on open letter marketing and Envelo. Envelo is a software platform, a CRM that we built out and launched uh, last year. And again, it was just a big void in the market that I was like, a lot of investors, a lot of our customers have a huge struggle with data management and making sure that they're knowing how to pull lists, knowing how to manage and organize their prospects who they want to market to, marketing to those people, pushing them through their lead and deal pipeline. There wasn't a system that did everything for you. And I wanted to solve that. So that's kind of when I jumped in and got onto the development side of things and started that business. So the only investing I do is through like, I lend money to other investors, but I just didn't have the time to do everything. And these other businesses were for me more easily automatable, I guess that's a word. For instance, like open letter marketing doesn't need me to run, right? Like I don't need to be here. I don't really do anything day to day. I do more strategy and talk to, you know, my COO and she helps execute. But like, I like those types of businesses where I can kind of set them up, create the process and have them run without me. And really for me, it's investing. I never got it to that point. And open letter marketing came in and just naturally like ramped up really quickly. So I had to just focus my time on that. And then I got really good at that. Investing kind of went, fell down a little bit. So it was just kind of where I was in that state. Yeah. I think a lot of people, especially, you know, real estate investors, property man, anybody in the real estate space, usually at this point, is leveraging technology as much as I can. And I feel like there's no perfect solution. Mm-hmm. And it takes a lot of guts to go out there and say, you know what, I'm going to go create my own product. I mean, especially without a software background. Like, did you bring somebody in house? How did that work? Yeah. 
like going through the process, that's one thing, like to get automated when I was working part time, I did build out my own CRM through like Zoho and like Podio and stuff like that. Oh, nice. So I, I got to understand like automations. And then we had like a small MVP that we launched a Podio and a like our own built out product that was smaller and as a test case. But all those I brought in like developers to help me out. But when we started launching in Velo, I mean, we launched last year, but we've been working on it for the last like year and a half. And yeah, we brought in like really high level developers and designers and stuff like that. So it definitely wasn't myself building it out. So in Velo, that's going to be for folks listening, that's an end to end solution, right? So open letter marketing, you can pull a list or you can upload your list and they'll handle all the physical pieces of mail going out. And Velo yep. is going to be pulling lists. It's going to act as your CRM, yep. right? And then yep. how far does it take it after that? So yeah, you can market through the platform. You can track your leads. You can do lead follow-up and you can even track deals. So it's truly like an end-to-end solution. It's incredible. Well, props on that. I want to go back to the direct mail pieces though. The two kind of juggernauts in that space is the postcard and then your standard letter. Yep. Is one better than another in a certain use case? Or are you going to tell me that postcards (laughs) are just as good and you just need twice the volume? (laughs) Great question. No, I'm going to give you a different answer, but it's not (laughs) going to be as specific. So my answer is I don't know. And how you do know, because it's it's, honestly, it's different for every investor in uh, different areas. That's the other thing. Like people try to compare themselves to what other people are doing and then it doesn't work for them. But they have to understand, like it could be a completely different area. It could be a different demographic. Your investment strategy could be different and, you know, different results can happen. But with postcards versus letters, I always recommend if somebody's starting off, start with postcards and then track. You have to track and how it works. And don't just send like 100 because that's not a large enough population set for you to draw conclusions from. But do five to 10,000 over whatever period of time. But send out postcards and then send out letters afterwards. And take a look at the response rates that you get from both of them. And let's just say that postcards or letters are twice the cost as postcards. Okay. If you're not getting twice the response rate for letters or even a little bit more than postcards, then postcards might be fine. But with that said, what we found is not everyone is going to respond to the same piece. So some people will be much more inclined to respond to a professional letter over a personal letter. Like we found that I got a lot more calls from older generation when I sent a personal handwritten style letter. The professional letter was, you know, a younger group, right? Postcards are a different group. So really, you'll get different response rates and people to reach out depending on what you send. So my biggest thing with that is like when people ask me that question, I'm like, I don't know until you try it. And if I told you, gave you one answer, yeah, letters. It would right. it, like that's a complete guess. So I always tell people like test it, but you have to track it. You have to understand what works for you. Because right now I never sent postcards when I was investing. I tested it and it didn't work well at all. So I only sent letters. So mm-hmm. I never sent postcards. Other investors only send postcards. It works really well for them. Can you speak to on a high level the response rates for the different pieces? Yeah. The different pieces is a little bit tricky because you don't know if they're calling back on the current piece or prior pieces. 
So that's the challenge. But in general, most response rates now are around, you know, 0. 0.4, 0. 0.5% response rate, right? So that's why also volume is important with direct mail, really any type of marketing, because you're going to be getting, you know, a half a percent response rate. So if you're sending 100 or like 200 mailers, you're really not going to get anything back. That's why you need to send at least, you know, 1000 plus or my 2000 to 2500. But then also with that list, high quality prospects, mm -hmm. 2000 to 2500, your response rate should increase because you're targeting really specific people. So right now the industry is around, you know, 0.5%. We also have you know, real penned letters. So those- That's where I was going to go next, yeah. Yeah, so those definitely show a much higher response rate than the 0.5%. So we're getting close to 0.81% response rate on those. So those have been performing exceptionally well over anything else because, I mean, it literally looks like somebody hand wrote you a letter. Look, I placed an order for those recently. They're incredible. <laughs> They're cool, right? Like it's literally a machine with a big pen in its hand yeah. or whatever, like yep. writing these things. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely amazing. You know, when the technology came out, I was like, oh, that's really cool. I didn't think we'd ever get machines. And now we have, you know, a ton of them back there all working and, you know, just doing really creative stuff. Like we now have like white ink pens to write on mm -hmm. like dark envelopes. That is like really unique that nobody else is doing that I know of. But it's really cool how it looks. And like no one would ever imagine that a robot is writing white ink on a dark envelope. So yeah, we're doing a lot of fun stuff like that. Again, we always want to stay ahead of what everybody else is doing to help our customers stand out from the competition. That's kind of our biggest thing is like, how do we get better responses is allow our customers to stand out. Any other cool things as far as the R&D side that we can see pop up on the website soon? Could be working we on are something. working on a lot of things on the website. <laughs> Nothing that I can, that's really like amazingly cool. Just again, helping our users through the order process easier, providing education and just giving them like a really nice seamless, you know, order process. One thing I've thought about is the size of the mailing fees, right? So I've received kind of these flyers, like almost feel like plastic, but in like a standard manila envelope. Mm -hmm. I mean, have you ever experimented with a much larger letter? I mean, I've never done anything myself with those. But like, you know, if an investor is doing it themselves, what I did do back in the day was I would put something in trying to remember what I even put in the envelopes back then. But I would put little things that it's like bulky mail, right? To make it stand out like there's something in there. So I would do that to be a little bit different to get them their curiosity to open it up. So that definitely was helpful. I used to put dollar bills in letters. <laughs> so that helped with the response rate. But I've never really tested like oversize, anything yeah. oversize. I just haven't tested. Interesting. And how about varying the different pieces of mail within a campaign, which yeah. I've never done. I've only yeah. done just straight postcards, straight letters. Do you yeah. recommend a real pen letter, then a postcard, then a professional letter, then a personal letter? I highly recommend that. Again, going back, you know, we find that not everybody responds to the same mail piece. So varying it up is going to help increase your response rates. So I always like to start the campaign and start it off just introducing, hey, my name's Justin, I'm interested in buying your house at whatever street, right? Keep it super basic. You're gonna get more responses, but less quality because people are not gonna really know who you are, what you do. And then over the campaign, I vary it depending on the, you know, with different letters, handwritten letters, professional letters, real penned letters. You know, I never use postcards, but if postcards work well for other people, absolutely include them. 
but I vary up the pieces and the messaging. And the messaging works in a way that I provide more clarity on who I am and how they can benefit from selling to me through the process. So that generally takes me from small handwritten piece all the way ending at a professional letter where it's like, you know, bullet points of like the benefits. So by the end of the campaign, I'm getting more quality calls, maybe less quantity, but those are the ones ultimately that are converting. That's why like third or fourth touch, you're starting yeah. to convert because people are gaining trust in who you are. They're seeing that you're consistent and they're reaching out to you. Is there a done for you campaign on open letter? So you can yes. go in and say, look, like the pieces are already set. Like we're going to yeah. start out with a real pen letter. We're going to go more formal, formal. Yeah. Yeah. So that was another big thing that we wanted to do that, again, at the time, nobody was doing it. And still, I don't think anybody else is really doing true campaigns that varies through pieces. But yes, we do have marketing campaigns with open letter. We have proven mixed campaigns that we've tested. We know works in the cadence and the different pieces that go through everything. So we do offer those. I mean, the cool thing is because with these campaigns, as people are calling back and say, hey, remove me from the list. So we've also set it up because we know obviously our customer is we set a Google sheet that's a shared Google sheet. So users can remove those people from the list. So the next touch that goes out, they don't have to worry about it sending to that person that just said, take me off your list. So we can automatically update that. Yeah, the biggest pain point, especially when I was starting out, was you would get a call whenever throughout the day and you're in the middle of something, right? So you were like grabbing a post-it or in the notes app on your phone and just trying to keep track of all the people that asked you to take them off the list. I mean, what do you recommend now? Is it is Envelo the app, right, that they put on their yeah. phone to maintain their list in real time? So we don't have a phone app yet with Envelo, but if people are starting out keeping it easy on like an Excel file or a Google Sheet or anything like that, it's pretty easy. I used that for at least six years, like a just an Excel file that had all of my records that I went into. Somebody called me back, I'd remove them from one tab and drop them into the removed tab so I know not to market them again. Cool. All right, man. What else are you working on? What else can we see coming up in the future? I know you said you're focusing on these two companies. What can we expect from Envelo? Anything else coming down the pipe? Yeah, the biggest thing for me is just focused on, you know, Envelo and open letter marketing. They work obviously hand in hand. The direct mail from within Envelo comes from open letter marketing. But the stuff that we're doing in Envelo, you know, through this year, we're adding tons of features and functionality, which I'm really excited about. And then next year is going to be like my like giddy year, like my really exciting year, because <laughs> we're going to start to do things that no one else is even thinking about or even looking at through AI and automation and analytics. So that's the stuff that I'm really excited about, because we look at Envelo as like, yeah, it's a CRM platform, but we want it to provide feedback to the user so they understand how they're doing in their business and provide them with the suggestions and how they can improve their business. So those are the things that I'm like really, really excited about getting into wow. because that's just going to take our product and the users to a completely different space. You're right about AI. I mean, I assume you could leverage that to write your pieces. And are you saying, are you suggesting that they could even, you know, vary that message depending on how the campaign's going? Yeah, even more in depth than that, like, hey, we see that you have these three deals that you closed within the last two months. Let's go back into your prospects database and highlight the ones that have similar characteristics to these ones, right? So more stuff like that. And like, hey, you're converting prospects to leads at this percent. Industry average is more around this percent. So to help you increase conversion rate, try these different things. Wow. Now that's exciting. That is awesome, man. Well, can't wait to see it, Justin. This has been phenomenal. Appreciate your time. And uh, we'll be talking to you soon. Man. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate it, man.